0: So last week, we started a series called Trust and Obey. It's a study of First Peter, the letter that Peter wrote to the church in Asia Minor. And I wanna begin uh, our time together by reading First Peter chapter 2, 1 to 12, which is our text for today. Here's what the scripture says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord, that he is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices we began this letter from 1 Peter to the church at Asia Minor. And I kind of want you to try to put yourself in the mindset of the hearer, the person from Asia Minor that was hearing this letter read by a guy named Sylvanius that delivered it from town to town. I want you to think of yourself sitting in a house church for just a moment in a culture that is completely Roman. It's Uh, filled with Roman religion and Roman gods and Roman pantheon. It's filled with Roman government. It's filled with Roman opulence and shopping. It's filled with Roman culture, theater and athletics and art. And at the same time, it's, it's right in the middle of a culture that pushes back against the people of God, pushes back against the message of the gospel to the point of localized persecution. So if you put yourself there in that house church that day hearing it for the first time, you'll remember that the first part of the letter, chapter one last week, we learned about two legs that the church has to stand on in the midst of this kind of difficulty and suffering or persecution. It's the hope of the resurrected Christ and holiness that we live out in the context of the culture because of Christ. Today I wanna talk about living in that hope and that holiness from Peter's letter. And we're simply going to go through this chapter verse by verse. The very first word that we get of chapter two and and verse one is the word so. It hearkens back to everything that's been said in chapter 1, the first part of Peter's letter, but mostly it is because of, it's it's saying so or because of the resurrected Jesus and the gospel message and our love for each other. Because of these things, the resurrected Jesus, the gospel message, and our love for each other as brothers and sisters. So we must do a couple of, th- uh, a couple of things. In fact, there are five things observations that I want to make today from this section of Peter's letter that are significant to us when we talk about living in hope and holiness. So the first thing that Peter says that the believers must do that are sitting in this house church hearing this letter for the first time and thinking about how to apply the gospel and the culture and how to live all this out, he says, we must put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. And this is true also for us here in 21st century America. We must Put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. So he lists several sins. He says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, the focus here on all of these is a big we. We're not just talking about the individual, but we're talking about the gathered church. We're talking about the body of Christ. It's We, you and me, us all together. And it tells us that we need to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. The focus here is on community relationships. Remember, we're hearkening back to brotherly and sisterly love. And these sins, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, they tear at the fabric of the church, ripping away threads of love. When we understand this in the context of Roman culture, it helps us see that Peter is saying to the people that make up this church that we need to be set apart from the culture. We need to be contrasted to the culture much different than the culture because when you study Roman culture in Asia Minor, what you find out is that it's full of malice, full of deceit, full of hypocrisy, and full of envy. So Peter is saying, hey, we need to put away all of that because of because of the gospel because of our resurrected lord because of our brotherly and sisterly love and we need to be set apart at the same time he challenges the believers verse 2 like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good So that not only does he say we need to put away sin, but he says we need to crave pure spiritual milk. And he's giving an illustration. He's simply saying, like newborn babies crave their mother's milk, we as growing people in Christ, growing Christians, maturing Christians must crave pure spiritual milk to continue to grow. Uh, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other. Now, the word spiritual there is a Greek word, logikon. It relates back to the word logos, and Peter chooses this word spiritual or logikon on purpose to indicate that this pure spiritual milk is the logos, the very word of God. It's to emphasize that we are to crave the word of God. And we will crave it, he says, when we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. When we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, we'll want it more and more. Now, Peter has a thing for Psalm 34. In fact, he quotes it several times in his writings. But here, when he says in verse 2, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord, he is good, it harkens back to Psalm 34, 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, when we have experienced Christ, when we've been set free from our sins, when we realize that we've received mercy and that we will not get the death penalty that we deserve, but we've been actually given new life and and will be raised to an inheritance That 1 Peter 1 tells us never fades away, never goes away. It's being kept for us. You taste of the Lord's goodness. You see it and you know it and you want more of it. You want to be closer to him and walk in his ways. And so here we're told to crave the pure spiritual milk, crave the word of God, crave growth. Now, just a side note. Sometimes people think that spiritual growth is simply just a mystical sort of thing, that as we grow older and if we just sit in the church and listen to someone talk for some period of time, we'll mystically grow more. But in reality, spiritual growth is not primarily mystical, but rational It's informed and sustained by God's word, and Peter knows this. And so we're to crave this word. We're to devour this word, to put it in our heart. I mean, ask yourself this question. Peter's saying this to these people who are to live in this culture that is so very different from the way that God says we should live. And you live in a culture like that too. How? Apart from knowing God's word, will you know the heart of God? Know which direction he wants you to go. Know what you're supposed to do or how to live. You just won't. And so we are to crave it to know God. This is the first thing. We put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. When we talk about living in the hope and holiness of Christ in the midst of a culture that is just so very different than what, uh, what is a biblical worldview. Now, here's the second thing. Here's the second thing we learn from this letter in chapter two. We learn something odd at first. We learn that we are being built into a spiritual house. Again, it's a we. It's not just me. It's not just you. It's a we. We are being built into a spiritual house. This is in 1 Peter chapter two, verse four and five. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting concept. We, according to Peter, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And honestly, there is a lot here, but let me just scratch the surface for just a moment. Peter indicates that we are living stones, not dead stones. So what is the stone? The stone is the construction material for the house of God or the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Each one of us as followers of Jesus, then become living stones. We are living, not dead, living because of our resurrected Lord Jesus. He's the one that makes us the living stones. And as living stones, we are then being made or built into a spiritual house. Now, remember, Peter is a Jewish disciple of Jesus. When Peter and Jesus and the disciples said they were going up to the house. Do you know where they were going? They weren't going to Peter's mother-in-law's house. They weren't going to one of the other disciples' family home. When they said they were going up to the house, they were going up to, in Greek, it's oikos. Oikos, the house, the temple of God. And this is a direct allusion to the temple of God, and now we're learning as followers of Jesus, remember, try to put yourself in the first century in this house church in Asia Minor in the middle of a Roman opulent culture where you seem very small and the culture seems very big, where you are persecuted and the culture seems to be winning and you seem to be losing. Now, Peter is saying, we are living stones built into a spiritual house, He's telling them they are and we are collectively being built into the new temple, the temple of God. He goes on to say this, that you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only are we the stones for the house, but we're now the priesthood. All of us together, collectively, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, we are the priesthood in the world today. We are the living stones building up the temple in the world today. I've been on the Temple Mount many, many times in Jerusalem, right on top of Mount Moriah, in Zion, and I can tell you there is no temple there today. Many people are waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. I would say to you, based on this passage and many other passages, that the temple is already being built. It's the temple, it's the house, the spiritual house that Christ is building as he brings each one of us to himself, gives us a new identity and makes us his priest in the world. And this is the second thing we learn. We're being built into a spiritual house, the the new temple of God. Here's the third thing. In verses six six through eight of chapter two, it teaches us a simple truth. In this spiritual house, where we are living stones, Jesus is the cornerstone in Zion. He is the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is simply the head of the corner. It's a foundation stone supporting the design and structure of the entire uh, house, the entire temple. It's not a, a, a stone high, but it is low, It is forming the foundation, and without this stone, there is no design, there is no support. This is the cornerstone, and Jesus is called the cornerstone. Check it out in verse six. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone uh, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those of you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's what we learn. You may know or you may not that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible through the prophets was pointing to a day when one would come who would be this cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. He will not be put to shame. There is no shame for one who believes in Jesus or for us who believe in Jesus as the cornerstone. In fact, the passage says, only honor comes to those who believe. There's a flip side. The scripture also teaches that the cornerstone Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense for those who don't believe or don't disobey. I mean or do disobey. Paul uses the same term in, in the, his letter to Rome the church at Rome in Romans chapter 9 verse 33. This comes from another psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 118:22 that was looking forward to the Messiah. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's what Peter is quoting here. So on the one hand, Jesus is the cornerstone building a spiritual house, and we are living stones added to this house with Jesus as the cornerstone. We are the priest in the world on behalf of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. We together, not just you, but we and secondly, though, Jesus is a stumbling block. He's a rock of offense. I mean, some people uh, really, really, really stumble right over him and choose, cannot, in their mind, come to a place of obedience and belief, of faith and belief. And we see that all the time in our culture. Initially, it was, it, it was that he was a stumbling block to the Jews, They did not see him for what it is, but throughout the history of the world since that time, he has continued to be a stumbling block for those who do not believe. And and for those, uh, they uh, they find him a stumbling block. Now, this is the third thing that we learn. Now, here's the fourth thing. We are chosen and called for a purpose, according to Peter. So again, put yourself in that house, church. Put yourself in the midst of persecution. Put yourself in a culture that is Roman and that that seems so powerful compared to this small church receiving this letter. And Peter says, we are chosen and called for a purpose. Look at verses nine to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he has changed us forever as followers of Jesus. He's called us and changed us, given a new identity, a new outlook on life, a new hope a new holiness, and a new eternal destiny. He calls us a chosen race. We are a race of people in the world that have been chosen. And what do I mean by that? I mean everyone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and any generation that confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, God raised him from the dead. They are saved and they are by God's purpose, and according to his description, a chosen race. We are then a royal priesthood. Again, reiterating the fact that in the world today, we are not just a priesthood, but we're a royal priesthood representing one king, the one true king, and we serve uh, sacrificially. We are living sacrifices on his behalf in the world. We are also a holy nation a holy people group, people for his own possession. We've been made into this because we were chosen by him and we, we in faith, followed him. But secondly, we were called for purpose. Uh, if you look at verses 9 and 10 again, it, it, it tells us why We we were chosen. We were chosen that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why we have been given the grace to, to be followers of Jesus. This is why the people that were sitting in those house churches in those towns in Asia Minor and they were listening to Peter They realize, like, we have a purpose in the midst of this culture, and that purpose is to proclaim how excellent is the one, Jesus, who led us out of spiritual darkness into light. He opened our eyes. He forgave us our sin. He gave us freedom by showing us the truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the light. And in that, we became his recipients of his mercy, though once we didn't have it, it changed everything. Now, one of the interesting tensions here in this passage of Scripture is simply that the the passage tells us that Jesus is a cornerstone for some and and a stumbling block or a rock of offense to others. And the biblical writers all through the Scriptures, what you find is that they lift high the sovereignty of God and they say that he has chosen us. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, all of that that we were predestined, the scripture says. But at the same time, it never lets humanity off the hook for its choices, for its confessions, for its faith. And so there is a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man to choose to stumble over Jesus or to place his faith in Jesus. And I will say to you that that tension cannot be explained. It is not in the scriptures one or the other, but it is both. And it is a tension that we have to live with in faith. Why? Because you're one person with one brain at this point in time, and you don't understand from God's perspective how everything works, nor will you ever be able to fill in all of those blanks related to that tension. Yet, we are called to proclaim his excellency in the world. Now, the first century house church in Asia Minor, they were now to go demonstrate the love of God in the public square in Roman Asia Minor. They were to share the gospel, the, excellent, the message of the king, the goodness of the king to people who worshiped Zeus and Artemis and many other gods and depended on these gods and and trading according to to the way that Roman law worked things out for their their livelihood. And, And these people in this house church were to go to that culture and say, there's only one way through Jesus, the resurrected Nazarene. It seems impossible, but that's what they were called to do. And the reason they were called to do that, and the reason you and I are called to the same thing, is that he changed us forever. And he calls us to tell people about the one who led us from darkness to light. That's the fourth thing we learn in the second chapter of Peter's letter. And here's the fifth and final thing. Fifth thing is this. The way, and as we live out this hope and holiness and the culture that we live in, as they did in first century Asia Minor, the way we conduct our life matters. Matters. It matters significantly, and especially in difficulty or persecution. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we're described as sojourners and exiles. We're ambassadors now for the kingdom of heaven. We're residents already of the kingdom of Jesus. We're just living in this culture, passing through as sojourners, as exiles from our homeland, which is heaven. And this is the first sort of reality we have to come to is that we are representatives of the kingdom, representatives of heaven. Again, a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, we're proclaiming his excellencies. That we are sojourners and exiles in this culture, in this land. They were in Roman Asia Minor. And, and in that, the way that we live our life matters because everybody knows we're sojourners and exiles. We're set apart. And so we abstain from the passions of the flesh. And the caveat that Peter gives you, what are the passions of the flesh? There's all those things that have already been listed. Malice, deceit, envy, pride, lust, all of these things. We abstain from those things because they wage war against our soul. This is the thing. When you give into the passion of your flesh, it does your flesh does war with your soul. It tears you apart. It renders you useless for the kingdom of God. And Peter is saying that we've got to abstain from these passions of the flesh in, in our life lived out in hope and holiness in the culture. And here's the clarity of it. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The Gentiles up is an umbrella term here for the unbelievers, even the ones that are persecuting you. Why? Why do I have to keep my conduct honorable among people that are persecuting me? Or why do I have to keep my conduct honorable among those people who do not Believe? Well, he answers that question. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, because what, what's going to happen is they're going to try to say to you, follower of Jesus, that you need to be persecuted because you're an evildoer. You're not following the ways of Rome. You don't hail Caesar. You realize Caesar is the son of God in Roman uh, culture. You, you say there's another son of God. So they're going to say, You need to be persecuted, and you need to be able to live in front of them this way, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, they're going to look at your life, and even though they may be saying, you need to be persecuted, your life is in Christ needs to stand on its own. It needs to be full of good works and conduct so that the follower of Zeus that is calling you an evildoer would have to think of his own life and look at yours and see a difference. Your conduct, your works matter when it comes to living this Jesus thing out in the culture that we're in now, it goes one step further. It says, So they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like, somehow, the works of my life are to lead these unbelievers to glorify God. Now, think of it does my life as a living stone lead other people to glorify God? People who don't even believe in Him, does it lead them to glorify God? Do I love that way? Do I live that way? even in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and persecution. It says that they will do this glorifying of God on the day of of visitation. There's some argument as to what that is. Maybe that's the day of judgment. Maybe that's the day of the return of Jesus. Maybe that's the day that the Holy Spirit woos the unbeliever to Jesus for salvation. We don't know exactly for sure, but what we do know is that our conduct, our honorable conduct among people in the culture matters as we proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of spiritual darkness into marvelous light. The way we live, you and me right now, Christians, the way we live in times of suffering, in times of difficulty is a signpost to the unbelieving world pointing to hope in the resurrected and returning Jesus. That's a big deal. Now these are five pretty hard truths. We put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. We're being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone of that house. We're chosen and called for a purpose and the way we conduct our lives really, really matters. Don't think your life doesn't matter. It matters for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, for the good of the people in our culture. And this was the word given to the church, those house churches in Asia Minor as they walked out their faith, living hope and holiness in a Roman culture that persecuted them. I tend to think as I study this scripture that God wants more from us in our faith. It's not just about knowing content but it's about living out this hope and this holiness and the ways that Peter points out today. And maybe maybe you're far from that. You don't have to be perfect. I'm not asking you for perfection. I'm asking you to put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. And maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you just simply need to pray and ask God to, to woo you to himself by his spirit. Maybe you just need to begin reading the scriptures again for the first time in a long time. Let me just suggest as we're going through 1 Peter, Read through 1 Peter slowly during the week. Think about it. Listen, ask God to speak to you. Maybe you need to draw near to him. Maybe you're an unbeliever, like Jesus is a a rock of offense to you, but you're beginning to see who he is, and you want to come to him in faith for salvation. He, according to the Scriptures, is the only one that can forgive us of our sins and save us from the penalty of our sins and give us a new identity uh, and a new eternity. And maybe you just need to place your faith in him. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raise him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's an act of confession, an act of belief, the kind of belief that, that causes you to be different, to live differently. We'd like to know about your decision today, whatever your spiritual decision is. We'd like to know if you need prayer, if you have questions about this sermon, if you need to be baptized, If you want to be saved in Christ, we want to know all those things. So you can text to us the word response, R-E-S-P-O-N-S-E, to the number 94090 right now. Text that word response to 94090. We're going to send you a form back. You can tell us what your spiritual decision is, what your question is, how you need prayer, any of that. We want to connect with you. Let me say this. Lots of truth today. Go back, read over it slowly, ask the Lord to speak to you. He will, I promise he'll give you ears to hear and eyes to see all the things that he has for you and for your household. Will you pray with me? So God, it seems like a tall order today. As we listen to this letter that Peter wrote to the earliest Christians and we try to apply it to our own lives, we see So many places we fall short, but Lord, we want to take steps toward you. Help us to crave pure spiritual milk, the word of God. Help us to lean into, in our culture, lean into proclaiming the excellencies of you, Jesus, the one that led us from darkness to light. Help us to put away sin. Father, help us to love each other well and love people well, just like your word teaches us. Father, this is a day where it's no longer acceptable to be on the fence. So, Father, would you, would you either be that cornerstone that changes everything for us and builds us into that spiritual house or that rock of offense fence that pushes us off the fence? Lord, I pray By the power of your spirit, that you would save souls today, that you would change lives today, that people would be drawn to you today, that they would put their hope fully in the resurrected Jesus, no matter their circumstances, no matter their difficulty, no matter their uh, situation. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.